See, I don't write songs all the time. It's always, to a certain degree, I have to reinvent the process. W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman, coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Great River ME1NV, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500. Analog tones on a Wednesday afternoon in the moon cabin. Thank you for being here. Folks, I have this picture on my phone of a bar receipt with a big, wet splotch in the middle of it. The receipt is from a music hall called Club Helsinki in Hudson, New York, and it's from the night I first saw Chris Smither live in concert. I did not take this picture because I wanted to have a record of how much the drinks cost. I took it because Chris closed the show that night with my favorite song of his, and as soon as he started playing it, I was transported back in time to the first time I heard it, which was 2007, when I was still a cab driver. Now, as I've mentioned on the show previously, I felt really lost during my cab driving years, like I was careening through my life, much the same way my Ford Crown Victoria careened through the streets of Manhattan. I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to be doing, and I was just clinging to the wheel of this cab, hoping that if I just kept driving, I would figure out what direction I was supposed to be going and find my way. And one day, I was aimlessly cruising the city streets, looking for a sign, and I heard these words come pouring out of my radio. If I were young again, I'd pay attention to that little long dimension, the taste of endless time, it's just like water. It runs right through our fingers But the flavor of it lingers Like a rich red wine In those days we I pulled over to the curb and I just sat there listening to this song, which I later learned is called Leave the Light On. I remember looking out at the East River and thinking, I am letting my life run right through my fingers, constantly focusing on everything that isn't happening instead of noticing everything that is. And so that night at Club Helsinki, when Chris started playing Leave the Light On, I was right back there at the curb again. It had been 11 years and more than a few reminders that my time isn't endless. And I still hadn't learned to sip my wine. And I remember looking down and realizing that I had sobbed all over my bar receipt. These days, whenever I catch myself careening, I listen to Leave the Light On, and I try to pay attention. Chris Smither has been having this effect on people for over 60 years. He is a product of the same 1960s folk scene that produced Towns Van Zant, Joan Baez, and Bob Dylan. He's played with everyone from Dr. John to Lowell George to B.B. King to Ramblin' Jack Elliott. His song, Love You Like a Man, became a hit single in 1972 when Bonnie Raitt recorded it, and then again more than 30 years later when Diana Krall covered it. And when you go to see Chris perform, I don't think the experience is all that different than what it must have been like back in the 60s. He comes out on stage with his guitar and sits down in a chair. He's all alone, save for a set of finger picks and his rhythm section— which consists of a slab of board that he keeps at his feet and stomps on while he plays. And when Chris starts singing, everyone in the club leans forward a little bit. It's not because he's hard to hear. I think it's because we don't want to miss anything. I've heard Chris described as a troubadour, and earlier today I was looking up the origins of that word. Some linguists trace it to the old French verb trobar, to find. And that's not a bad way of describing what Chris Smither is doing with his music. 
presenting his findings, or maybe crooning them, making field notes via fretboard for six decades now, and counting. So a couple weeks ago, I noticed that Chris was coming to The Turning Point, another legendary music venue about an hour north of New York City. And I reached out to see if he'd be willing to spend a few minutes talking to me before the show. And that's what you're about to hear on WALT. The Midnight Disease. I used to stay up that late. (laughs) That's the first thing that comes to mind. I don't stay up that late anymore. Uh, That's no longer the case with me. I seldom see midnight anymore. Mm -hmm. But um, in fact, I've discovered that that writing is usually much more fruitful in the morning. Mm. You know, you haven't settled into your grooves yet for the day. Mm-hmm. I, the beach is flat. There's no footprints on it yet. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, okay. <laughs> you know? so, so it's tabla rasa kind of sort of situation. Okay. You know? So let's say it's a, it's a morning when you sit down to, to work on some, some new songs yeah. and, and the beach is flat, as you put it. I love that. Yeah. How do you start how do you how do you step onto the beach? Oh well, usually I start with the guitar. So the first aspect of it is noodling around, trying to find guitar parts. I, you mm-hmm. know, just the music comes first for me all the time. It uh, tends to shape the direction that the song is going, and I like to have you know, I like at a minimum four or five musical ideas going at once. So mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. I get stuck, I can switch. Mm-hmm. over to another one mm-hmm. and but let's assume that i've got my four or five you know okay. i'll okay. still sit down with the guitar first and i and i'll run through them you know and i and sort of get myself in and i and i sing to them i mean i'm I'm looking at the time i'm looking for melody lines against what is usually you know a, a, a harmonic rhythm okay that i have but i don't have a melody line yet so mm-hmm. I'll sit down at, you know, I sort of jump back and forth between a desk and a chair that I play in. Okay. And, and the desk, the chair that I play in has a microphone by it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so I can record anything that happens. And then and I sit and I scribble and I, sometimes I just sit and wait. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, well, I'm really glad you brought this up because um, I heard you say in another interview once that uh, scat singing is a huge part of your process. Oh, yeah. I have the sense listening to you say that and, and listening to this interview that the melody has to be right before you start to attach words to it. Well, the melody can get shaped by the, the, the words as well. Oh, okay. You know, it, it, it's a, it remains in flux. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing's written in stone. Um, but mm, let's say you have a tune that da da uh, so if I were going to scat to that, I would say, "Got nothing, nothing but the K don't know." I say, nothing you say don't find." And uh, see what that teaches you is like what might come next, and where the rhymes are going to fall. You just experiment with sounds, you know. Yeah. And you you tend to learn which sounds are easiest to rhyme. Uh huh. And round, oh, sounds. Vowel sounds tend to make good endings for lines. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and the, the more abbreviated vowel sounds make good internal rhymes because they, they kick the rhythm along. Eve told Adam, snakes, I've had them. Let's get out of here. And go raise this family someplace out of town. They left the garden just in time with the landlord cussing right behind. They headed east and finally settled down. You know, it's a funny thing. I, I'm not really conscious of it until it's a situation like this where I'm talking to you about it. But, yeah. You know, about what what actually goes on. But, you know, my wife is a poet, and I read a lot of poetry. And um, rhyme is frowned upon in poetry yeah, these right. days. <laughs> and I think unjustly so, because, and, and I think that's because, the, you know, there's an, a creative element to rhyme that 
is really worth exploring because it it will direct what the song is about. Sure. I, you know, it, it gives you ideas that you never would have stumbled on any other way. Yeah. Well, you know, it makes me think of something else I heard you say once, that, that part of the draw to playing blues music and playing solo guitar mm, specifically yeah. is that it gives you a container to work within. That's right. Um, and if I'm hearing you right, it, the rhyme is sort of a similar mechanism. It's like, it, you know you're... Dr- vaguely what you're driving towards right. but there's room within that structure to, to explore yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so you're sitting and and you're working on some song forms mm-hmm. on the guitar that you've been exploring right and you you have some some scat exploration happening yeah. and and you're starting to feel that some of the rhymes are falling into the right place uh-huh. against those guitar forms right how do you know when it's the right place it's fun to sing Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's yeah. fun to sing. And, you know, that's one of the beauties of uh, Randy Newman and Paul Simon are two of my favorite lyricists. And, sure. and Paul Simon in particular, because he really appreciates the feel of the word in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a song called Up on the Lowdown that is just like, I mean, that's half the song right there. Because right. it's fun to say, Up on the Lowdown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps me hanging around. Keeps me up on the low down, up on the low down. Things like that can really get you going. You're attracted to them because you have to believe that if you're attracted to them, it'll hit other people's ears as well. Yes. You know, and, and what, you know, a song's three minutes long. You've got three minutes to say something that is going to stick in people's heads. You mm-hmm. know, you want that ear candy going. You yeah. Know, and you want, want people to remember it. I've listened to a lot of songs that go on forever. Yeah. And and they tell a very interesting story. And sometimes they really tell it well. But I'd be incapable of telling you the story after <laughs> at the end of it. Right. <laughs> because there was no hook. Yeah. There was no no nothing to catch you the first time around. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and again, with this idea of a container, if you kind of think of how much of a journey you can take people on in a compact period of time. Mm-hmm. That, that strikes me as a very interesting challenge, especially for somebody like you. One of the reasons I'm, I'm so interested in this scat element of your process is your lyrics are, are very special to me. Um, and I know many people tell you that, but um, it was surprising to me when I, when I found out that you worked guitar first, mm-hmm. kind of melody first, before the lyrics, because all of your lyrics seem not just so finely observed, but you also love to play with internal rhyme and expanding meter within a phrase. And um, it's, you do a lot with your lyrics. Um, So you come up with a line like up on the low down Mm -hmm. that is fun to say, and Mm -hmm. that makes you want to keep writing Mm -hmm. if I'm hearing you right. right. When does meaning or poetry intention behind what the song is about start to enter your mind or does it enter your late. mind? Late. <clears throat> late. Um, usually, not always, mm-hmm. but usually late. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking for, first, I'm, I'm looking for catchy phrases. I mean, just mm-hmm. things that things that tickle my my fancy and I, I just love language. I love the way it works. Mm-hmm. And, and then it, it will suggest things. But I hasten to add that it will suggest things that I've already been thinking about. Mm. And so, you know, I, I'll, I'll say, oh, you know, that would relate to this conversation that I had with Goody. You know, Goody's my producer. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. And, um, and then I think, okay, how's that going to go? And, and I'll, sometimes I'll sit for half an hour at my desk just thinking about, mm-hmm. about how these things fit in and, and what does this line mean? It's surprising, you know, the, how little I know about what's going on until it all starts to fall into place. It's like putting a puzzle together, you know. Yes. And when you, when you put a, a jigsaw puzzle together and you have no idea, all you knew, know is this color goes with that one and that shape, this line seems to follow here. And all yes. of a sudden you start to see the big picture and then it falls into place quite quickly. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and, and to kind of go with, it, you know, the themes we've been discussing, I love this, this puzzle idea because you also know that there are a thousand pieces, say. And one of those pieces is these guitar forms you've been exploring. One of them is blues, broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. One of them is that it's got to be fun to say. 
And another one is that it reminds you of things you've been thinking about or talking about in conversations. But this idea that you actually don't really know much about it. You said once, um, you know, it's funny, like a big idea behind the show is, can we figure out what is the midnight disease? Mm -hmm. And I have to say, Chris, I I think you actually said it once in another interview. So (laughs) I'm going to quote you to yourself and see if you agree with this. I will. You say, um, songwriters don't know how to write songs. They know how to make songs happen. Ah, yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it's, that's your point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I like me in, in that mode. Yes, yes, <laughs> I think yes. I was onto something back then. Mm-hmm. I'd forgotten that. But no, it's, it, I think that's true. You know how to pull certain triggers yeah. that make things happen. One of them is getting up early. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's one of the, the, the triggers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and patience. patience. Yeah, that's another one. You just wait. That's the hardest one, I think, mm-hmm. is the waiting. And it, it's surprising how little time it takes sometimes, but it doesn't seem like it's a little bit of time. It mm-hmm. seems like a long time. And then I always think of it as a she. She comes creeping in the door. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but only when she's ready. <laughs> yeah, right. It says, I'm here, and this is what I'm wearing today. Yeah, right. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of, it's... Uh, Oh, I have a song I can point at that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't write continuously. I write in batches. Mm-hmm. I, I decide, okay, it's time for a new batch. So I have to learn it all over again. Mm-hmm. And every time I learn it, I say, okay, now just keep writing. Yeah. Because now you've got it and it's easy. You can pick up this 30-pound weight without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, The muscle's all primed, but I never do. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. never do because by the time I finish, you know, Let's say an album's worth of songs. I'm exhausted. Yeah, I, I, it's very to me. It's very tiring. Yeah, I'm so relieved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've quoted Randy Newman many times on this. People, somebody asked him if he enjoyed writing songs, and he said, "No, I enjoy having written songs." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that makes me think of your point about wanting the song to have lines in it that are fun for you to say. Yeah. So that. I mean, it strikes me as you're saying that that one of the benefits of that is that in the moments where you know the song's not done yet, it's not mm. about what it wants to be about yet. Right. There are at least parts of it that you, you know you can hang your hat on yeah, until right. the rest of it yes. clicks into the puzzle. Yes, that's right. Just in terms of this idea that the, the process is mysterious yeah. and there are, you just kind of have to wait until things present themselves to you. I wonder if, if as a bit of a case study, I could ask you about your song, No Love Today. Mm-hmm. On your record, Live As I'll Ever Be, right. you open by telling a story about this fruit salesman right. in your hometown. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up in New Orleans, we ha- used to have a fruit and vegetable man that would come down the street twice a week. And you could hear him coming for blocks away because he would sing at the top of his lungs about what he had on the truck. And it would sound like, I got beans, I got red beans, black beans, all kind of beans. Sweet corn, sweet corn, mulleton, okra, okra. I got banana, ice cold watermelon. All these housewives would just pour out of their houses. <laughs> Could you give a little synopsis of, of who that guy was? He was one of many. Okay. Uh, he happened to be the one whose route went by my house uh-huh. on Laurel Street in New Orleans, uptown New Orleans, about three blocks from Audubon Park. Uh-huh. And uh, he actually, this one in particular, had been on that route for years. Originally, when I was a, a little boy, he had a, a wagon <clears throat> pulled by a mule. Uh-huh. And then he, he moved up to a pickup truck and sort of a pyramid of shelves built up on the bed in the back with, you know, crates of veggies, you know, produce and, mm-hmm. and all sorts of things. They also sold ice when I was a boy because a lot of people had ice boxes instead yeah. of refrigerators. And you need that in New Orleans. And you need that in New Orleans. <laughs> and, um, and he would come down the street. No, the, my guy would come down the street walking and, we, and he had a, one of his sons would drive the truck mm-hmm. very slowly behind him. And he would go th- through this whole routine mm-hmm. of, of combined dance and song, mm-hmm. you know, dancing down the street, singing at the top of his lungs about what he had on the truck. It's a really remarkable moment on that, on that live record because 
you perform it the way he did. Yeah. And you can hear the audience just like their breath catch at how vivid <laughs> this portrait is. Yeah. And you say, this is a memory from my childhood. Yeah. But if I'm not mistaken, and feel free to correct me, in the song, I get the sense that his singing of his inventory is returning to you at a moment in your adult life. That's right. That's correct. Could you tell me a little bit about that moment of, of when, where you were in your life and, and how this memory kind of came back to you? I know exactly how it happened. <laughs> and it was, my, I was visiting my father. Mm. My parents had left New Orleans. This is very late in their lives. They'd left New Orleans and moved into uh, an assisted living facility in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And um, I, by this time, my mother had died a couple of years earlier, and so I was making it more than the usual effort to spend time with my dad. Mm-hmm. And he he was doing pretty well. And, and I went to see him one time, and he said, I got something that you might be interested in. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, there's this... Uh, my father taught at Tulane University, and there was a, a, a local historian, a Louisiana historian, who just published something or other along with some recorded thing about uh, about the fruit and vegetable guys, you know, in New Orleans, you know. And uh, it was accompanied by, he had a book, but it was also accompanied by a video. And uh, my dad put the video on and, and said, do you remember this guy that used to come down the street? And, and, and this historian was imitating the guy. Uh-huh. And I, and I looked at my father and I said, that's not what he sounded like. <laughs> <laughs> and it all, it all came back to me just in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's just wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and Dad said, really? And I said, yeah, this is what he sounded like. And I just, I just did it, right? I mean, very much like the way I did it on the, on the record there that, sure. that you heard, the live version. Yeah. And, and I did it. And, and my father looked at me astounded. He, and he said, that's exactly how he sounded. And had you I ever guess, done it before that no, moment? No, no, never. I just, uh-huh. I just sort of burst into it because it was such a, a vivid memory at that moment mm-hmm. of him coming down the street. Yeah. And, and that very day, I thought, you know, that, that there's a song in there. You yeah. know, there's really a song in there. And for the next three days, I would sit out on the porch of his house mm-hmm. working on this thing. And he wouldn't come out and listen. He was pacing around. He'd, he'd say, are you working on that song? And I'd say, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then he'd pace around inside while I did it. He was like an expectant father. You know, yeah, I was yeah. like in the maternity ward or something. <laughs> and then I, I finally, I finished it. I said, I think I got something. And I, I sang it for him in its rudimentary form. It wasn't very polished. And I could hear that produce wagon on the street And I could hear that farmer singing As I cried myself to sleep I've got banana and watermelon and peaches by the pound Sweet corn butter town, more better than in town i got okra, it's enough to choke you And he said, you think that's going to work? <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> well, you know, he was always he was always really puzzled and, and not puzzled, but intrigued by what I did. You know, mm-hmm. because he appreciated the fact that I did it, and he could see that I was being successful at it. But mm-hmm. you know, it, it was a foreign thing to him, which was kind of strange because his own brother was quite a, an accomplished musician. Oh, know? really? Oh, yeah. Really? Howard Smither. Okay. And uh, taught musicology at Chapel Hill and, mm-hmm. and wrote uh, what is still the standard work on, on the oratorio, four-volume work, mm-hmm. Howard Smither. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> you know, it, was, it, was a, it was really kind of funny. I'd love to stay on your dad for just a moment, if you don't mind, mm. because um, from what I've been able to gather, he, he seems like, you know, that Dos Equis most interesting man in the world. <laughs> Um, <laughs> That's how I see him. That's not how everybody sees not him. Not Okay. <laughs> well, just for example, like if I have it right, by the time you were two years old, mm-hmm. you had lived in Miami, Quito, Ecuador, yeah. San Antonio, and then New Orleans. That's right. And that's by the time you're two. Yeah, but you have to understand there was a war going on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, yes. and then a lot of people were shifting around quite quite. Yeah. And it didn't. It didn't stay. 
it got a little more stable after that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But something that's interesting to me about that, I guess, is because you have spoken so eloquently about being comfortable with mystery Mm -hmm. in terms of the songwriting process. um, At some point, I heard you mention that your dad worked in intelligence. Um, He did, yeah. Yeah. And I, it was very tempting to me to, to feel like that was a puzzle piece in my understanding of you as an artist, that mm-hmm. what he did was sort of mysterious and what you do is sort of mysterious. Yeah. I, is that connection meaningful to you? I never thought of it in, mm-hmm. in that, quite that term, but you have to understand that the circuitous route by which my father got into intelligence, mm-hmm. he's basically a language person. Oh, okay. That's okay. his whole thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm very much his son in that respect. Yeah. And when people started getting drafted, mm-hmm. I mean, he was working on a master's at the University of Wisconsin at that time mm-hmm. and in, in Romance Languages. Mm-hmm. He knew he was probably going to be drafted. Mm-hmm. Is in the 40s? In the 40s, yeah, mm-hmm. early 40s. So uh, he went around to all the services trying, but instead of being drafted, he wanted to see if anybody could use languages, and they all said no. Hmm. But then he went to the bureau, to the FBI, and the FBI was in charge of Western Hemisphere intelligence at the time, and also interpretation of European theater mm-hmm. intelligence. And they said, yeah, we can use you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what he wound up doing was debriefing Spanish and Portuguese sailors in various ports of entry all over the United States. Wow. And he wound up in Miami. Mm-hmm. And um, because Spain and Portugal were hotbeds of espionage, being neutral countries. And right. there was all this, I mean, you just, all you got to do is watch Casablanca. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> you understand what was going on. Yep. So the, these Portuguese and Spanish sailors would come aboard with all sorts of information that they had been given by all sorts of agents mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in Iberia. And mm-hmm. so... Um, they would land and, and, and he would talk to them because mm. he spoke the language you know, right, they would right. get it all done so that's how that worked and then when, they, when the war was winding down they suddenly said you're now the legal attache to the embassy in Quito, Ecuador wow so and I had been born meanwhile I had been born six months earlier you know, uh-huh. in Miami along with a twin sister mine. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so we went to Quito you know, mm-hmm. for a year mm-hmm. I don't remember any of Quito, mm-hmm. although sure. linguistically I, I'm told that I do. <laughs> it made me learning Spanish easier. Yeah. Well, we, I have to say there's, there's <clears throat> something about your, your awareness of, you talked earlier about round sounds being better for rhyme and yeah. this idea <laughs> that you're scatting at first and there's kind of sounds swimming through you mm-hmm. that find specific meaning later. Yeah. I don't know. It feels like a connection to me that right. at an early age, you know, that Paul Simon song specifically of, he says, uh, the first thing I remember I was lying in my bed. Couldn't have been much more than one or two. There's a radio in the next room. My mother laughs. You get this sense of, I have a similar picture. Of sonic the, memory. Yeah. 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 Well, that, it's quite possible. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I do have an affinity for languages. I, mm-hmm. I just, and I'm fascinated by them. Yeah, so anyway, that's that's what happened. Then then after the war, you know, he got attached to the San Antonio office in in Texas, the San Antonio office, and, and realized that he was just a cop. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want to be a cop, yeah. so he went back to academia. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I know there's a moment in your life when you've you've started learning how to play guitar. Right. And you're listening to a lot of Josh White, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he was. What would what did you love about about Josh White? Well, I just you know I didn't realize at the time what I I, I mean I just thought it was it was it was this folky kind of music that that I was sort of sort of into, but it also it bore a resemblance to pop, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I couldn't put my finger on it. John Kane, Creeper Chef, Chattanooga, Timbuktu blood. Those men who think they know the corpus is global. And this unites the racist supremacy, flying in the face of old man chemistry. And taking all the facts and trying to twist them. But you can't overthrow the circulatory system. And that was news. Yes, that was news. That was very, very, very special news. Cause ever since that day we've had those free and evil blues. But it was blues, and you know, and they're all related. You know, everything's related. Mm-hmm. And I never put that together until 
several years later, I went to Mexico City. I was, I was going to be an anthropologist, mm -hmm. but I was fascinated by the songs and the music and the guitar playing. And, and when I got to Mexico City, I had a roommate from Texas, and mm -hmm. he gave me a Lightning Hopkins album. Right. Blues, <laughs> blues in my bottle. Blues, that was the one. Yeah. That's the one. What if you got a nickel, Mary? I got a dime net. Let's get together, Mac, and brand little wine. Drinking wine for you. Drinking wine for you. Drinking wine for you. Yes, pass that bottle around. Looking back, you know, I made a connection. This is like, this has some relation to Josh White. And it's much more obvious to me, this example is much more obvious to me what its relation to pop music is. And this guy is playing rock and roll all by himself. Got it. And that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up because this is something that you talk about a lot. And you actually mm -hmm. sing about this a lot too, the appeal of solitude and kind of being a an individual on a quest ah yeah well the individual on a quest is for sure yeah yeah <laughs> is that something you had been thinking about previously when you heard lightning hopkins or um do you feel like it kind of crystallized in that moment that's a good question i i know i don't think i was aware <laughs> I, I i don't think i was that aware of overarching themes in my life at that, <laughs> at that time. Yeah. I, I was, you know, I was just, I just loved what he was doing. Uh -huh. And I was always very shy about, you know, playing with any other people because uh -huh. I, I, I'm totally self-taught. And I, I didn't know how to play with other people. I didn't mm -hmm. know, I didn't know the names of the chords. Yep. I, I just seen them in a book, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, I knew I knew that that was an E chord, but I didn't know why it was an E chord. Yeah, it could have been named banana, and I would have been just <laughs> banana as happy. Chord, sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But but I realized that somehow that that what he was doing was the same thing mm -hmm. that I was hearing from Chuck Berry, from from Fats Domino, from mm -hmm. Elvis Presley. You know, but he was doing it all by himself, and he was doing it all by himself. Yeah, yeah. So then. If I'm not mistaken, I know I'm skipping some steps here, mm -hmm. but um, you go to Paris in 64, 65. Is this right? That, yes, that's right. That's right. And I've heard you say that, uh, I guess you were ostensibly still pursuing anthropology then, mm -hmm. but it all changed. Yeah. It, 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 I realized that. I'm not sure what, I just realized that that wasn't for me. Yeah. Uh, the, all I really wanted to do mm -hmm. was play the guitar. You know, this is what I like to do. Yeah. And and I will do it to the exclusion of almost everything else. I failed at that year abroad and went back to New Orleans to, to pick up my university career. Mm -hmm. And it just kept going downhill. <laughs> and just from that, and, and before the end of, that was my senior year back in New Orleans. And before the end of that, I met, Eric von Schmidt, I, I, I started learning bits and pieces about the whole scene in the Northeast, the mm -hmm. village in mm -hmm. Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, and I, I got some encouragement from people and I just, I just dropped everything and I just went. Plenty more to come with Chris Smither right here on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break you're listening to WALT. And so were you, whether it's in Paris or when you get back to New Orleans, were you playing out anywhere? What what did your playing? I, I did like? play. I, I played a little bit down. There was a folk, <laughs> a folk bar. Okay. <laughs> on Bourbon Street, sandwiched between two strip clubs. <laughs> God forbid you should break a juice a juice string, you know, while you were playing in that place, because everybody in the audience will tell you where to find a new one. <laughs> but it was, you know, they were. I I um. They had, there was a house Kingston Trio type band there, and, and they hired me to to play tweeners, you know, like fifteen okay. minutes in between the sets, yeah. you know. And these guys were playing four sets a night. Wow. I mean, it was, 
and there was a, a coffee house on Esplanade. And I, I, I ran into several people there that I would run into later, including one, one singer who came through and everybody said, you got to go and see this guy, Jerry Ferris. So I went down and I saw him and I thought he was pretty good. You know, he's better than me, that's for sure. Uh-huh. I thought to myself, this guy knows how to perform. Mm. And that was an important thing for me to learn. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. He didn't teach me how to perform. He just taught me that it was something yet. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'd better learn. <laughs> this and man I, knows something. <laughs> and I ran into him again, uh-huh. like 20 years later. Huh. His, and his name was Jerry Jeff Walker. <laughs> 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 Yeah, I'd say he he knew something about something. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. it was it was that was interesting. And I I would go down and there was a place down on Decatur Street on the other side of Esplanade called the Dream Castle. Mm-hmm. Babe Stovall used to play down there, and he was you know he had a steel-bodied national guitar, and he he was the real deal. See the woman that I'm loving, woman that I crave to see. Well, the woman that I'm loving. All of us who were into that kind of music, sort of whole new folk, rediscovered blues, just that and the other. Yeah. Uh We thought it was pretty special that we had the real deal. Yeah. We could go listen to it. Right. This seems like a really interesting period for you because you are feeling us pull towards playing music. Mm -hmm. And you still notionally have this academic path that you're... Mm -hmm drifting further and further away from. So I just want to make sure I understand this thing you said earlier about how you came back to New Orleans and things kind of kept going downhill. Does that mean you were, like you kept going out to play music instead of working on your thesis? Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) And and there was nobody there to sort of keep me in line Mm -hmm. in any way. My my father had gone back with my mother, had gone back to Europe Mm, and left, left my sister and me to finish school, oh, no. you know, on our own, <laughs> uh, which, you know, was, you know, in the end was a very good thing, I, you know, but it, it seemed like a disaster yeah, yeah. <laughs> at the time, certainly to my father, mm-hmm. but, um, and my mother would always tell him, William, leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Good for her. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. So you're saying it was a good thing because even though you didn't, do what he thought you were going to be doing. doing. It was I, I made a move. You made a move. I made a move. Before the end of my senior year, I had met Eric von Schmidt, and, and through him, uh, sort of a casual meeting with, with Jeff Maldar, and they all said encouraging things, you know. Mm-hmm. You should go up. You should be up. Nobody's going to listen to you in New Orleans, man. And they were right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you should go up to the, you know, what was then the hotbed of that kind of music, songwriting and, and blues-influenced stuff and the blues revival, which is the village in, in Cambridge, and mm-hmm. that's where I wound up. Yeah. And so at this time, are you playing originals? Are you playing covers? I just started to write songs. I think it, well, by the time I got to Cambridge, I had written two songs. Okay. And Two was enough to, <laughs> to get you up there. Well, I, I had a, a, a pretty big... Uh, repertoire, mm-hmm. you know, and and I I was sort of interested in writing songs. I didn't think of myself as a songwriter at all, mm-hmm. but I hadn't been on the scene in Cambridge for more than six months when I realized that that was the only way to go, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because and I should I should have emphasized this earlier. One of the things that I loved about what I was doing was performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me that was addictive. Yeah, and that's there's this thing. You generate this thing between yourself and the audience, and it is just so magical. It, it, to me, it was it was narcotic, yeah. and it was legal. <laughs> you know, it was right. just incredible. Yeah. And I, and I, I would actively search for that high. Yeah, it's funny you 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 describe it as narcotic because uh, another thing I heard you say in one of these conversations is, you said, "I'm the trip master." Uh, <laughs> yeah. When I'm up there, it, it's I'm, and I get the audience on my trip. Yeah. That's it. Like that's what you're. That's chasing. what I'm looking for. Yeah. And the, and the, and the funny thing is that and not so funny, but it's it's interesting that it's not really my trip mm-hmm. because they're really taking their own trip. Yeah. You know, I'm just this guy 
you know, right. sort of leads leads the way into thinking your own thoughts. To quote you, uh, I'm not a passenger, I am the ride. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, you get to Cambridge mm-hmm. and you start writing your own songs. Yeah. When does, and I, I apologize, I don't even know what to call it, but the, the piece of wood that you stomp on. Oh, right. Provide percussion while you mm-hmm. play. How did, when did you discover that? Much later. Much later. Okay. Much later. Um, there was something that came to, to my notice that I had noticed all through my whole career, which was that there were times when I felt really good and I felt like playing and then I would get out on stage and it wouldn't happen. Hmm. And I finally realized that every time it didn't happen, there was a carpet on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. I'd be practicing, I'd be warming up back in the dressing rooms and in the green room, and things would be clicking along. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then it would go away. Not only could I not hear it, I couldn't feel it. Right. And I mentioned this to a woman who, who was a part of a partnership that became my management mm-hmm. at the time. And she said, well, you know, we've got to make sure people hear your feet. If you have to hear it, they probably have to hear it too. So I said, okay, well, you know what? We could just bring a board along, you know? Yeah. And that was as simple as that. That, That's fascinating. That is fascinating. (laughs) So, but I mean, it starts with this awareness that you have that there's something happening in the green room. There's something happening when you're warming up that gets lost between there and the stage. Right. And you realize that it is this thing that gives you almost like it, it's what allows the music to live in your body instead yeah. of in your head right so i have to imagine then and i apologize if this is sort of a pedantic question but was there then an attendant debate with yourself about like well how thick should the board be and what shoes should i wear oh, all like, sorts of oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's a that's a that's as you know it's an instrument you know and you have to explore the possibilities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and finally you know i, I realized that the best thing for me was something not hard, mm-hmm. something softer. And, and eventually I found a, a sort of a texture of, of particle board that worked really well. Because mm-hmm. for one thing, you want something that's, that's a little softer, mm-hmm. a little thumpier instead of clickier. Mm-hmm. And something that is tone-free, does not have overtones mm-hmm. or a note. Mm, right. You know? mm-hmm. And so... Which rules out things like you know hardwoods and right, right. <laughs> maple and oak and right. things that are thought of as tone woods, and also the the shoes matter too because mm-hmm. you know you you really wanted a distinction between when the heel hit and when the sole hit, otherwise it just sounded like too much monotony. You were looking for the foot equivalent of a boom chick, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, you, you know you just that differential. And the other problem is that I, I've gotten so old that my hearing isn't what it used to be. And so sure, I tend sure. to have to rely on other people to, uh-huh. to tell me what it sounds like. Right, know, right. You know. Like there might be overtones happening that you're yeah, not hearing. Yeah, I'm not hearing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, well, we just have a few minutes left, and I want to make sure you have time to get ready for the actual show you're going to play tonight. Yeah. But um, I wondered if I could ask you just about um, the backstory of a couple of your songs that are just very meaningful to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Um, one is Happier Blue. All right. Well, I was sad and then I loved you And it took my breath And now I think you love me And it scares me to death Cause now I lie awake and wonder How worried I think about losing you I don't care what you say Maybe I was happier blue I don't care what you say Maybe I was happy blue it's very powerful as a music fan mm-hmm. when you hear somebody sing a song about something that you thought you weren't allowed to talk about, that uh, you thought you weren't allowed to admit. You know? yeah. And so I take that song to be about this realization like, oh, I, I got what I wanted. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I can handle it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So can you tell me a little bit of the backstory about how you arrived at that? something you wanted to sing about? Well, it was something I'd been thinking about, mm-hmm. just the way you obviously have thought about it. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> and, um, thought about her. <laughs> and I, yeah, right. And I've sat there and, and, and 
and noodled through my guitar part, noodled through this and my rhymes, and then, you know, you come up with a nice round sound like blue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think I was, it was probably mixed in with thoughts about, the irony about blues is that a lot of blues are really happy. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. They kind of cheerful, upbeat things, you know, they're yeah. funny sometimes. Yeah, let's they, go out, they, let's get yeah, drunk, yeah, let's yeah. get together. Right. And, and, you know, the whole thing just sort of coalesced, you know, into, a, you know, can I paint a picture of this contradiction? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a similar vein, uh, also on the live record, mm -hmm. um, there's the song uh, Winsome Smile. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's, it's kind of related, I think, to Happier Blue, mm -hmm. subject matter wise. Yeah. And one of the, one of the lyrics in that song is... Uh, Time wounds all heels. <laughs> Time will wound all heels. Time will wound all heels. And it ain't pretty. And no. <laughs> no, it is not. Because it's noble, oh, and it's true. You won't forsake this pain for other lovers. Happiness would fill your mind with misery. But time will wound all heels, and it ain't pretty. Where did that lyric come to you, come from? I was thinking about how to visit destruction on this guy that's gotten the affections <laughs> of, of your beloved. Uh -huh. and, uh, <laughs> so, you know, so you think of him as, as you know, a heel or a bad guy, yeah, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, I have an affinity for aphorisms, so time will heal all wounds. And then, so here we get time will wound all heals. Maybe he'll get his in the end. And it's just one of those things that you think about and you go, oh, that that's pretty neat. And you write it down and then you think to yourself, well, shit, am I being too clever by half? Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, you know? uh -huh. Then you say, no, I'm going to leave it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yep, yep, uh, yep. Um, I guess the other one I'd really love to talk to you about for a minute or two is Leave the Light On. Oh, yeah. Um, which is very meaningful song to me, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Many people tell you that as well. But I think one of the reasons it's so meaningful to me is that it feels very plugged into this idea we referenced a few minutes ago of the, you know, the, the kind of individual on, a, on an uncertain quest. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I wonder what's, what's resonant to you about that idea? I think I've been... Um absorbed in, in considering the progression of my life or a life, anybody's life, you know, how we look at it, how it seems. I've, I've got a whole new batch of songs, and one of them is, goes right back to that same mm -hmm. thing of how things, when you're looking forward, they look one way, and then looking back, you know, mm -hmm. everything seems so clear. Yeah. And yet... It's not really because, you know, essentially what I explore in this new song is the idea that when you look back, all you see is the steps you took. You don't see all the ones that you didn't take, right, you know. Right. And yet when you're looking forward, all you can see is all the possibilities. Mm -hmm. That's that beach idea again. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. I think in Leave the Light On, uh, what I was saying is really, here's what I figured out so far. Yeah. <laughs> you know. This is, this is how it looks to me now. Mm -hmm. we, we all go through our whole life trying to make a model mm -hmm. of the world mm -hmm. with the, the fond hope that we can predict something yeah. about what's going to happen next. And finally, you know, you get to the point where you just give up. You know, you think to yourself, the best philosophy is just to be ready for anything. Yeah, it's quite a profound and beautiful idea to make, make peace with that. Mm -hmm fact that you're never going to know. Mm -hmm. But there is this recurrent idea in your music of like, but you have to keep going. Like, oh, yeah. You say in the song, these races that we run are never ending. Yeah. There's no finish line. Right. A race, of course, implies a sense that you're running towards mm -hmm. something. Right. Do you feel that way? Or do you just like running? <laughs> I, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's Forrest Gump. You know? <laughs> Yes. You know, okay. I, just, I just like to do it, you know, and I'm, I'm I, I stay curious, you know, I really am curious to see what happens. I try not to be fearful. These are hard times for that, but 
you know, um, I don't know how I say but as though I were going to say something else, and I'm not sure what else to say. <laughs> well, uh, I wish you a great experience being up there tonight. And um, It's usually fun here, I guarantee it. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me, Chris. Really oh, you're welcome, it. Sam. It's good to talk to you. All these races that we've run were not for glory. No moral to the story. We run for peace of mind. But the race we're running now is never ending. Space and time are bending, and there's no finish line. I will live to be a hundred. I was born in 44. 21 to go. Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Chris Smither, who's on tour as we speak. Check out smither.com and click on Concerts to find out if he's coming to your town, and do not miss him if he is. Special thanks this week to John McAvoy at The Turning Point and to Carol Young. If anything on this show resonates with you, drop me a line, midnight at walt.fm. We'll be back next week with another great conversation. And until then, keep driving. And if there's anyone in your life who doesn't understand where you're going, tell them, don't wait up. Leave the light on. You'll be home soon. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.